Welcome to Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. In this episode, Actionable ESGs, Achieving Ambitious Corporate Goals in Sustainability Part 1, BHDP's Daniel Lessing brings local leaders in sustainability together to discuss the growing importance of ESGs for organizations. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and ESG practices set businesses apart when it comes to establishing their credibility and impact on the community. Now more than ever, employees are concerned about their organization's ESG practice as it affects their work life and influences their behaviors as well. P&G's Melissa Dowdy, North American CSA Manager for Global Facilities Engineering, and Steve Winbigler, Global Technical Director of Facility Technical Systems at Corporate Offices and Research Sites, as well as Elizabeth Rojas, Director of Cincinnati 2030 District. Join us to offer practical tips for organizations building or implementing their ESGs. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, Senior Strategist for BHDP. Let's get started. So today, we're going to explore ESG reporting, but we're going to break that apart a little bit. But we want to start from that as a base point. So Daniel, what is ESG reporting and why is it important? Thanks, Brian. So it's really a term that was utilized by the financial industry as they started wanting to have a way to track how a company was performing on some key metrics outside of just like their profits and their revenue. We started looking at environmental issues, social issues, and how a company governed itself. And for a while, those were kind of three separate buckets. And a lot of companies realize that there's a lot of crossover between how they're looking at environmental issues, how they're looking at social issues, and how they're governing themselves. So those three acronyms, while you know, they're kind of three separate buckets, they got slammed together. And what's happened is, you know, back maybe 20 years ago, there was a handful of very large companies that were looking at environmental reports, social reports, and they started merging those things together. Procter & Gamble is one of the companies that were kind of leading edge of that, one of the first companies to publicly declare what their goals were, put them in a report, share them with their stockholders. And the reason they started sharing them with their stockholders is that these big investment firms that are investing with companies across the entire nation and globally started seeing a very clear correlation between companies that had good governance and controls as well as you know, ones that were kind of putting their money where their mouth is. Like, hey, we're going to hit a 30% reduction goal in energy by this year, and then they hit it. So that's showing that they know what they're talking about and they're, and they're driving to it. So those big investment companies got really interested in ESG. So they started investing in companies that cared about environmental issues, that cared about social issues, and cared about governance. Really not because, you know, there's some big all aha about saving the planet. It was this makes a lot of sense from a money standpoint. Fast forward to today, where 95% of S&P 500 companies are reporting some sort of ESG publicly because they're all getting on board with this is where folks invest, this is where we have the best opportunity for uh, impacting our stock, and then it's correlating to this is what our consumers are expecting. Right, 70% of consumers expect to see what the values are of the company that they're buying products from. 
So, you know, everyone is paying attention to environmental issues, and especially over the past few years, the social issues have really bubbled up to be on par with the environmental issues. So if you want to be a company that people want to invest in, if you want to be a company where folks are buying products, you better understand how you're impacting the environment and how you're impacting the people in your communities and and across the country. Thank you for that, Daniel. So it sounds to me like it's setting a set of values that you can measure. So I was going to ask, because ESG was, it's strictly voluntary. Is it being regulated? Is that happening? So on March 31st of last year, so almost a year ago, the SEC voted, and it's not law yet. However, they voted to require a publicly traded company, so that's beyond just the S&P 500, every publicly traded company, to release their Scope 1 and Scope 2 and their Scope 3 emissions. And that is referring to how much of carbon they're emitting to the environment. Scope 1 is what they're kind of doing on their property. Scope 2 is from the, all of the utilities that are used to feed their properties. And then Scope 3 is all of their supply base and anyone who's doing anything related to the company. So there are some companies that are releasing Scope 2 and Scope 2 emissions. Uh, you know, Procter & Gamble does. You know, it's in their public report. Scope 3 is really hard. In addition to that, there are a lot of publicly traded companies that do not release their Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions, probably for very good reasons. And this SEC ruling is really freaking them out about, you know, how can we comply? There's a lot of pushback within certain large, expensive industries, oil and gas primarily, that are pushing back on the SEC on making this a requirement. Thank you for that, Daniel. So part of our goal here today is to focus on the environmental part of ESG. And I mean, sure, the social part will come up some, but this is more, let's focus on the E for today. But I was thinking with Melissa and Steve, you're looking at this from two different lenses. We have the corporate office where a lot of people are occupying and working every day. And then there's the manufacturing side, also people occupying and working, but also larger spaces with machinery and product and things like that. So PNG has started requiring new projects to be lead silver. Is that both for offices and for manufacturing? That is. In our corporate policies, we have thresholds based on cost and square footage for greenfield and brownfield major renovations, whatever the project type is. So lead silver is our target for everything. Yeah, and just a real good example of that, Brian, you know, up in our Mason facility, which is a little north of town, we put a, an expansion on that facility several years ago. And uh, with that facility, we, we certified that to a lead silver as an example. So what are some operational strategies that you've deployed that have been successful? You want to start with manufacturing? Because that seems like it'd be a lot more complicated. Or w- actually, which one's harder? Offices or manufacturing? Well, you know, if you look at what the work that happens in our research centers and our offices, we have a, a pretty diverse population, particularly with our new kind of work models now where some people are in the office part of the time, part of the time they're at home doing their work. It's a pretty uh, eclectic mix of people that are both doing research, and some of that research can involve pretty power-intensive equipment in uh, development of our new products. At least within the base of work that I work with, our type of facilities, it's like how do you take a set of facilities and optimize the energy use with so many people coming in and out on a pretty frequent basis, or some days they're there, some days they're not. So rather than a manufacturing model, which might have production starting up on Friday and, and maybe stopping on Friday or being seven days a week, we can have people in and out of the facility at all different times. One of the key things that we're really doing within a lot of our facility operations strategies now is we're going from run to a schedule to run to demand. 
And by that, if you look at traditionally how you operate a facility, Brian, you you would say, hey, at 7 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to start to heat the building up, or I'm going to start to air condition it in the summer. I'll bring the the lighting up to an occupied state, and then I'm going to run it till 5 or 6 o'clock at night when I think most people have gone home. That's fine in our old traditional models when people had a set work schedule and came into work five days a week. With the models we have now, that would be very wasteful on energy. So what we're trying to do is take our buildings and adapt them more that where the buildings can begin to sense when there's occupancy in certain areas or we give the end user the ability to turn on that part of the facility if they happen to need it that day. And for that particular amount of time, when we begin to convert from running to a set schedule to where people are in the space, we can sense or they can register their presence, then we bring the facility up to an operational state. And that's kind of the conversion we're in the process of going through right now to optimize our energy use at our sites. Would that be something that would be building-wide, or can it be zoned down to, like, little micro-environments to where it's floor-by-floor or... Neighborhood floor by, neighborhood. by floor, zone by zone. Yeah, it can be definitely done at a micro uh, level across the sites. In fact, I'll give you a really good example. We've implemented in our labs that have a more of a variable use to them. A lab environment, when you think about the amount of HVAC ventilation air you have to use, sometimes for chemical safety, you don't want to recirculate that air. So it comes into the laboratory, then we why send not? it out. The- no. <laughs> yeah, why not? You know, So that, it's very energy intensive to you know, heat or condition that air, and then you exhaust it out the roof, which is the right thing to do for the safety of the lab worker. But it's not that great for energy efficiency. With our green lab concept, where these labs have a highly variable use, meaning that sometimes people are in the lab, and then they may, may be several hours or a day where they're not, we're uh, going now to where we're putting controls in the front of the lab where the, the occupant can push a green button, it puts the lab into its operating mode, they go in and do their work, and then when they're finished, they walk out of the lab, they push a yellow button and put it back in a standby mode, and it makes it very energy efficient. And so that's just an example of one of the new run-to-demand strategies we're starting to use in our facilities. Steve, I like that, the run-to-demand strategy. That, that's a pretty cool concept. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of funny, but I think the best sustainability strategies are really any, any technical strategy. It, if it sounds simple, you've probably got a good strategy. If you need to go ahead and open up a dictionary, you're probably on the wrong track. You know, there's an old phrase like, what is the most efficient light bulb? The one that's off. <laughs> No, that's a great point, you know, because even within sustainability and you start to look at on a macro scale, when you can begin to start detecting occupancy levels in your facilities and understand exactly what your daily threshold is for average attendance, you can start to analyze your whole property portfolio and it's like, gee, if I have a lot of people in on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Obviously, they're not here on Thursday or, or, excuse me, Monday or Friday. They're probably more of a digital employee, right? They're, they're living out of their backpack. They can be home. They can come into the office. They don't need a big set office footprint. Knowing that you have a digital population like that, you can begin to, you know, like Daniel, he'll go ahead and design a very open, collaborative thing where people come in. There's touchdown or drop-in spaces. You don't have to take up nearly the building footprint. And all of a sudden, you can begin to house an awful lot of your business in a much smaller facility footprint, And kind of like the example of the most efficient light bulb is the one that's off. The facilities with the lowest carbon footprint is the one you don't have to have. So that if I can go ahead and before I needed three buildings back in the 1970s with this big set workforce, and now I can get down to two buildings because I've got more of a flex environment, that allows your your facility carbon footprint to come down, the energy use to come down, the emissions to come down. It all gets to just really applying more digital fluency and having a flexible workforce. 
Thank you for that, Steve. Yeah, Melissa, what, what's manufacturing looking at from that standpoint? Well, Steve just did a really good job talking about the complexities in research, but there are other complexities as well. So last time I counted, we had 55 LEED certified buildings in our portfolio, and they spanned across 15 different countries. So LEED is structured so that there are regional priorities set, there are different usage types, and different levels of complexity built into the program. So in manufacturing, you have these large volumes of space, very few people occupying them, so the baselines are completely different, different usage types, different needs, and different outputs from the buildings. If you look at the scorecards we have for manufacturing and distribution, even though there are regional priorities that generally define our approach for any given building, there are some consistencies. In distribution, we typically get a lot of the energy points for lead. In manufacturing, not so much. It's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. But then in both manufacturing and warehousing, we get most of the water credits. We're really good on water and circularity, so that's very helpful. Um, there are a couple of areas that we do struggle with in both and it's really in the creature comfort area. We hardly ever get the daylight and views, the thermal comfort credits, just because they're manufacturing and their distribution. They're large buildings with not a lot of light coming in. And then moving forward, as we refine our ESG strategies, we develop our internal programs to meter our spaces, monitor our usage, control our usage, and then, of course, as we develop new technologies for energy and water, I think some of the innovation credits we pursue in the LEED program will, will definitely change character. Yeah, that's one thing we've noticed as we work with manufacturing companies is the facilities that focus on sustainability. Part of that is the, the health and wellness conversation of the employees in the space. And, you know, whether it's lead or just a focus on well-designed, we're having conversations about daylight. We're having conversations about can we get a clear story in? Can we get skylights in? What's the proper number of air exchanges to make sure, you know, we have good turnover in the air? And people pay attention to that, right? If you're trying to hire a workforce and you go visit one facility and it's dark and it's old and it's dirty and you visit another facility and there's natural light and it's bright and it looks clean, like which one are you going to pick? And the companies that are focusing on the sustainability and wellness conversations are the companies that can attract the best talent and keep that workforce in the building. Today, right, we basically have a negative unemployment, right? There's more jobs than there are people. And we're all fighting over the same folks. So anything that gives you, you know, a step up on the competition, you know, companies are paying very close attention to that. Daniel, you make some great points. One thing that I discovered is when it came to P&G was the whole universal design. And we are incorporating universal design principles not only in our office buildings but also in manufacturing, which isn't often done. So it is quite a journey, but it does help with the social part of our, our ESG program, and it helps with our workforce and anyone who touches our facility. Yeah, you know, I think that was a great thing we did, really adopting the universal design concepts, because when the ADA first rolled out, we viewed that as kind of a regulation to help someone in a wheelchair. And that was just one particular use case. 
but by really expanding out the universal design concept, it really follows our good corporate citizen concept of just trying to have a very inclusive workforce and make sure that we're giving everybody an, an equal opportunity to really come in and contribute. And so I think it's one of the best things we've done. Is it social to be taking care of occupants? What's the driver there? That's one of the reasons that environmental and social issues overlap. You know, it's not a conversation just about the planet. It's a conversation about the people on the planet and how do we create environments that support the people in your community and across the entire globe. So we're designing a space, but there's people in that space. So when we talk about equity issues, when we talk about community involvement, so much of that is tied to creating an equitable environment for everyone. They have a right to clean air. They have a right to clean water. They have a right to get a job and have opportunities. And if you're a big emitter that's polluting the environment, usually that big factory, just from the history of our company, the neighborhood directly next door to that big factory, it's probably not your high-end homes, right? It's the original workers that lived next to the factory, and and whoever's there now, probably from a socioeconomic standpoint, are are not your high-end homes. So it's even more important when we have these big manufacturing plants that they're paying attention to the communities that they're in. Because when we look at the cases of asthma and cancer, usually they're uh, much higher prevalence in these manufacturing districts. I think the more that you can get the community and then your, your general business groups just thinking in terms of and versus or, that's really when you start to move the needle. Because as a company, you care about your customers. They're your customers. You want to take care of them. Your shareholders, they want to see that you have a commitment to doing the right thing. And so you take an or mentality, you're probably not going to have a great long-term economic outlook as a company. Yeah, you're part of a collective ecosystem. You know, how do we exist together? How old is Procter & Gamble? We were uh, formed in uh, 1837, and we started out actually, believe it or not, as, as a candle company, and then we worked our way into, you know, the products you see today. The reason I ask that is because you look at companies from, like, you know, the Fortune 100 companies from 100 years ago, the ones that don't exist were the ones that didn't adapt. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a testament that what you've decided to focus on, it shows that you are willing to learn and do the and part and see which way do we need to turn to be viable for the future. I've worked at companies before where I've left at the end of the day feeling miserable and it wasn't the job. Right, Uh, right. Like, after a while, I was like, I think this building is making me sick. So your focus on occupant health and wellness, I think, is long overdue. Right. <laughs> that's right. You know, sick building syndrome was really a thing. I mean, and, and it still is. You know, that is still prevalent. These businesses really are thinking about things in terms of what are the risks not taking action? What are the risks of not having an ESG and then following through with it? with the data because people are much more savvy these days. They know what they're looking for and talent is looking for organizations that are investing in them. Investors are looking for organizations that are doing good work and stakeholders now are much more understanding of these aspects and so they look for it as well. Thank you for that, Elizabeth. So for Melissa and Steve, what are some challenges you've faced, either on the manufacturing or the corporate office or even the laboratory side? Because it's a big organization, what could other people learn from things you've discovered when it comes to implementing these broad environmental strategies? Do you have any? 
You know, I guess um, what I would start out with is how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. (laughs) And so, you know, when you first come across your sustainable strategy, but, you know, start out with the fundamentals in your facility first. Look at how your base equipment, your base operating equipment is and Focus first on, hey, is that in the right condition or not? Or does it need some maintenance to tune it up? They gave a great example, you know, like with an automobile. If the tires aren't properly inflated, if the fuel injection systems aren't properly calibrated, that could be 10 15% of your fuel efficiency. Same holds true in a building. And so by going through and, first of all, getting the equipment tuned up to the right efficiency, that's like step one. And then from there, start to look at your equipment and how old is it and how close is it to the end of its useful life cycle And find those pieces of equipment that are about wore out. You have to replace it anyways. Start building a strategy right away. Do some research. What's the most efficient thing I can put back in its place? And so that, hey, I'm going to have to replace it anyways. And sometimes the incremental cost just to go from like a medium efficiency to a higher efficiency piece of equipment, it might only be 5% of the cost of the equipment. But you'll just get that over and over again, particularly now that our energy rates have gone up so much. So... Focus on your base operations, equipment that's at the end of useful life cycle. Get those upgraded. And then look for special or unique opportunities where maybe there's something that's really inefficient and do that as your next level of focus. And then once you have that good base in place, start to think long-term in terms of, am I getting maximum use out of this facility? Or is it possible for me to build so much efficiency into it that I could actually consolidate two or three other operations I've got into this one building? At a higher level, I've learned quite a few things in this journey at PNG. And first and foremost, it's very daunting, as Steve said, to start something major, like resetting your ESG goals or whatever your big project is. But to go back to the fundamentals, what's your starting point, as Daniel had said, Where are you starting from? Where do you want to go? Hopefully you have your goals set and then understand the different options and levers you can pull along the way. If it's specifically in your facilities with things you can change or add, or if it's new technologies you can incorporate. And it's always a balancing act between your capital funding and (laughs) what you have available. For me, it's just a classic engineering problem that's very exciting. The original conversation was I have the increased cost for a piece of equipment, and then I have the energy I'm saving, and I can do a very simple payback. Is it three years? Is it four years? Is it five years? Based off the increase in the cost of the equipment. And what a lot of corporations are doing now, getting back to how environmental issues, social issues, they all tie together. When folks say, I can't afford to be sustainable, I usually flip it back. You can't afford not to be because if you're focusing on attracting and retaining talent, if you're focusing on the resiliency of your facility, if you're focusing on your stock price, if you're focusing on your ability to sell a product, if you're focusing on the wellness of people in your space, like how often are folks homesick? When you add in all these other variables, that payback goes down to nothing because your people are your most expensive asset, not your piece of equipment, not your capital investment. If you're making a product, but you can't get top dollar for it because your company has a bad name in the industry and you got to constantly mark it down, you know, you're not getting top dollar for your product. And then your investors and your stocks are dropping. So when we start having that bigger, holistic conversation, sustainability pays for itself tenfold. 
Um, Melissa, Steve, anything else you wanted to share? Any, any hot topics on your mind that I forgot to bring up? And Daniel, did you have any other questions for the group? Thank you for your time, Brian. Yes, no, thank you. Thank you all for coming. This was exciting. I, I had fun. How about you? Did you have fun? Of course I had fun. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions presented by BHDP for this episode, Actionable ESGs, Achieving Ambitious Corporate Goals in Sustainability, Part 1, with Elizabeth Rojas of Cincinnati 2030 District, Steve Winbigler and Melissa Dowdy of P&G, and Daniel Lessing of BHDP. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I am Brian Trainer, your host, and I hope you'll join us for part two, where we uncover the ways organizations like 2030 District can help you reach your ESG goals.